Testament class this morning. Uh, you were there in that, TJ, right? We were learning about this very passage, the Antioch Church, right? Wasn't that good stuff? And in, in the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys with Barnabas, it's just powerful. I'm super excited. And let's, uh, let's welcome up our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Wyrostek. All right. Pastor Jared. Let's give it up for Pastor Jared, our awesome director. Amen. Okay, let's open up to Acts chapter 13. Today, what we are going to learn about in the Pentecostal handbook is we're going to see Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas. Thank you, sir. With John Mark, and we're going to learn something about him as well and how they started to reach both the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman province of Galatia. That's something to remember uh, Galatia is a province, not a city, like some of the other books of the Bible, like Ephesus, Ephesians, that's a city, Corinth, Corinthians, that's a city. Uh, Galatians is not a city, it's a region. And also, let me encourage you with this. If you're like me, and understanding history and geography come difficult, don't be intimidated by the Bible. All history and geography is, is somebody else's story and somebody else's neighborhood. That's all it is. So don't be intimidated by it. If I asked you to tell me the story of your neighborhood, you would know all the streets. You would know all the locations. If I told you a, a word in your language, you would understand it. It would be like so easy. It's like, what is pizza? You'd be like, oh, that's so simple, right? But when we're looking back on other people's languages, other people's streets, other people's cities, it's all foreign to us. And then the same thing if I asked you to tell me the timeline of like the bulls, you know, and how they won the championships. Joby, would you move a little bit this way, please? Thank you. Um, you. You could easily tell me, you know, Jordan did it three times. There was a three-peat. He took some time off, and then he came back. There was another three-peat. And, you know, it would just be, it would be so natural to you. Well, that's the same thing when you're looking at other people's history. When they were living it, it was natural to them. This is the historical record of Luke in the early church. These people and places and language, there was nothing spooky about it. Now, I understand that God determined determined through the Holy Spirit to inspire certain words to be in certain places. But I think uh, there's two errors we make with the history. Either number one, we just get intimidated by it, gloss over it, and don't treat these people as real people. Or number two, we get spooky. Like every name is a spooky name, and every place is a spooky place, and everything has to be like so uh, spiritualized. But it's not really being spiritual. It's being, uh, you know, it's, and I used to use the term sp super spiritual, but that actually doesn't describe it. What it's doing is being super Superstitious, superstition. And so what I want you to do is start to think of the big picture of the book of Acts as we get into these three specific missionary journeys of Paul, because this is what you'll be studying in school, and, and this is how you can understand Paul's life. And we'll go through more of the timeline stuff next week, but I'm going to give you a map today of his first missionary journey and all of that. But don't get intimidated by it. Take it just as simple as this. Imagine if you were telling your story to one of your friends. That's all this is. Luke is telling the story to the people at that time who would have known what Galatia was. They would have known where Antioch was. It's like you. Do you know where New Mexico is? Do you know where London is? You know? Uh, do you know uh, the different presidents, you know, that have come in your lifetime? Do you know the different governors, you know? And, and of course, sometimes you don't remember all of that, but it would be natural to you. I just say that because in my lifetime of studying the Bible, you know, 20 plus years, it has always been intimidating. And really just going verse by verse through the book of Acts this time around, I just got free from it. And it blessed me so much to get free. And I want you guys to be free. I want you to be able to start where I have basically been 
been running for 20 years. I want my ceiling to be your first floor. Does everybody get that? I, want, I don't want you to be intimidated by this because when I was taking all these classes, when I was in Bible college, I would get so lost. I'd be like, is Galatia a city or is it a region? Man, I can't even think about that anymore. Or who is in charge? How is Herod a king when there's a Caesar and then there's a governor? Like, why is there a governor over a king? You know, as we talked before, it's because these guys took over lands and let their, let their kings remain so that the Roman Empire could still have somewhat of an order. Okay? And it's the same thing with the names as well. Is Paul Paul or is he Saul? Or did God change his name like he did before? It's like, no, it's, it's not like that. Romans had upwards of three names, three names. And uh, if you were Jewish by birth and a Roman citizen as well, you would have different kinds of names. You'd have your Jewish names, your Roman name. And these are the things that were natural to them. Just like when Jesus was getting crucified, it was a multicultural city, Jerusalem. They had the king of the Jews written in three languages, three languages. So that would have been normal to you to be uh, around Greek speakers, Latin speakers, and Aramaic Hebraic speakers. That would have just been totally normal to you. Never would have thought anything different about it. So as we get into these journeys, as we start understanding this, by the way, there's two Antiochs. That can become real confusing. And they're named after their region of where they're at. And so there are multiple cities in America where there's two of them. There's two cities in America with the same name. But you know them by their state. You know them by their region. So you're going to learn that there's actually two Antiochs. Now that can get confusing. You can learn that Paul has two names, Saul and Paul. And then you're going to meet another guy named Paul. But the translators, instead of saying Paul, they called him Paulos, which is actually the Greek literal translation. And so it can just get confusing. Using, and then all of a sudden you start to see they're traveling and they're almost going in a circle. And it's like, how, how did they end up back here? What's going on? And because you don't know, they did just do a circle. They're going back to where they started. Like, like your home is where you're going to start a journey. And so where are you going to end your journey? You're going to end it at home. But like I said, there's two Antiochs. And so you may get confused about they travel to Antioch, but they come back to Antioch. Which Antioch are they in? Okay, Don't let this confuse you. Walk through this just taking it as a normal person would have then. And whatever you have to learn, do it without putting too much pressure on yourself, okay? So don't just avoid it and get frustrated with it. And then don't over-spiritualize it like we've done with uh, in the church of Paul's name being changed. Like there's been whole sermons preached about Paul's name being changed. And it's not even true. And it tells you in the passage it's not even true. And you're going to learn about that today. Okay, Acts chapter 13. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Now which Antioch is this, uh, Professor? Syrian Antioch. And why is it the Syrian Antioch? It's because it's in the region of Syria. Okay, Syrian Antioch. And you'll learn about that in a moment. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So many awesome things just said right here in the first verse. Number one, there was multiple prophets, multiple teachers. We're going to start seeing that there's going to be multiple apostles as well. Possibly Barnabas at this point is a prophet and an apostle, two and one, and a teacher. And a lot of these gifts are interchangeable. 
So the, the Pentecostal handbook teaches us right off the bat that the gifts are for everybody. But to have the leadership, you got to be an elder or a deacon. So the offices are elder or deacon. Here's the requirements in 1 Timothy 3, which will eventually be written, and in Titus. Uh, the, these are going to be the requirements as elder and deacon. But as an elder or a deacon, you can be a prophet, a teacher, a pastor, an, an apostle, etc., an evangelist, okay? And they name their names. Don't you want to be named among the awesome people of your church? Don't you want to be named among them? And I I want you to be as well. And then here, Luke, the historian that he is, tells us why we knew so much in the gospel of Luke and the other gospels about what was going on in Herod's court, things going on even behind the scenes before this in the book of Acts. Why do we know all these things going on with Herod? Because there is a guy named Manian who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So he might have family members that still work there. He may be able to actually sit in on governmental meetings. He may have that right to sit in on meetings. So here is how we know what's going on. Not that uh, the Holy Spirit had an accident, but it would seem accidental to the writer or the reader like, wow, why is this here? But as they study more and ask the questions, why is it I know the private conversations of Herod's meeting? These things were put in by the Holy Spirit to show us the validity of the history. The Holy Spirit did that to show us why we know the behind the scenes of what's going on. Because imagine if I was writing about the church age right now, and I'm telling you Trump said this and Trump said that. How do we know what Trump was saying behind closed doors with his cabinet? But imagine if in one of our letters it says, oh, and Ben Carson was a part of the church as well. Now you begin to understand, oh, Ben Carson was in those meetings probably and gave them to us to record. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. This is another amazing thing in verse 2. As they were praying and fasting, consecrating themselves to the Lord. Do I believe that fasting is, is a law that if you don't do it a certain way, you're sinning? No, but I believe it's a practice of the church that you can take as a tradition. And so they kept this practice as a way of going after the Lord's will in their lives. They wanted to know what was God's will for the church. So they just got together and don't over-spiritualize fasting. It's missing meals to pray. It's not just missing meals to miss meals. And that's what a lot of people make it out to do. And I did that for so often. I fasted uh, three days a week for almost my whole entire second year, okay, of Bible college. And many, many, many of those times I'm not praying at all. So I began to realize if I really just want to consecrate myself to the Lord, if I just spend the whole afternoon with God today and don't get distracted by making food and eating, I can spend eight straight hours with God and have a breakfast and a dinner and be doing exactly what the early church was doing instead of trying to fast for three days and only praying a few hours a day. So I would pray more in one day by doing it that way. And also, most of these guys, they only fasted from sun up to sundown or from sundown to sun, sun up the next day. So they, they weren't, oh, and there was the Daniel fast. There was different options for them to fast. And so uh, this is not Yom Kippur, a very specific fast. That's the only fast they were commanded to do. And now that's been fulfilled in Christ, which was the day of atonement for repentance and so forth. Now they're using fasting kind of like with Jesus in the wilderness and the other prophets who would fast like, 
Daniel and a way of seeking God. It was a way of seeking, not for repentance. So understand that as well. Tearing off your clothes, sackcloth and ashes and fasting like Nineveh did to be forgiven. We don't necessarily have to do, but we still, still should remember the repentive nature of it. And by the way, did you know that Thanksgiving was brought to, to our country as a national holiday? Nothing to do, nothing to do with the pilgrims. It had to do with multiple prayer and fasting days being in America, and they wanted to unify them into one. And then they attached a history to it. But if you study the history actually of Thanksgiving becoming a day, it was a day of Thanksgiving prayer and fasting. So it wasn't meant to be necessarily a day to eat and remember the pilgrims. It was a day that uh, Abraham Lincoln unified all of the prayer and fasting solemn assemblies. Look it up, history of Thanksgiving in America. Um, it actually had nothing to do with the, the history attached to the American foundation. Uh, because we used to have multiple days of prayer and fasting and consecration, and the presidents would lead these days. Now we know them as the National Day of Prayer. So while they were praying and fasting, the Lord spoke to them and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, now this once again is a Pentecostal practice. Why do we lay hands on people? To push them down to show them how powerful we are? No. We lay hands on them because this is a practice of the church. You will very rarely see this in any other type of church other than a Pentecostal charismatic church. Why is that? Because they're not using the handbook correctly. The handbook tells us that when we pray for people to lay hands on them, uh, James says to anoint them with oil for the prayer of the sick, to be healed. And so laying on of hands uh, was part of their tradition. And Paul laid hands on others as well. And Paul said, when I laid hands on Timothy, you receive spiritual gifts. And so this is a part of what they do. And when Paul in Acts 19 lays hands on the uh, the, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So praying and laying on hands is a part of our tradition. Now this sending off after the laying on of hands is the beginning of the first missionary journey of Paul. You'll know why Barnabas does not follow him on the rest of them here in just a little bit. We'll get a taste of that story. But uh, this is going to be his complete uh, first missionary journey. It's going to be from A.D. 46 to 48, starting in Acts chapter 13, verse 4 to 1428. So it's going to be about a two-year journey. They're going to start here in Antioch, Syria. See, they are in the region of, uh, of Syria, and they're in that city called Antioch. Now, this is going to be the... Um, the main launching place of the church. After the Jerusalem Council, which will be happening in just a few chapters, you will no longer really hear much about Jerusalem. You'll hear more about Antioch. That probably had to do with the persecution and it just being hot. Uh, just the block was hot in Jerusalem, okay? So they moved to Antioch and find greater safety there. And also Jerusalem gets destroyed in 70 AD. It also could, not, um, uh, could also be a part of their prophetic witness that they knew it was going to be destroyed. They knew that that was going to happen because of what Jesus said, no, no stone will lay upon another. So what we're basically going to see them is go from Antioch to the island of Cyprus to Salamis and then Paphos. Now get this. There is Paphmos and then there is Patmos. <laughs> see, come on. That just will confuse you right there, right? I mean, these are two islands. One John gets um, exiled to, Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S. So the, the first two letters are the same, and the last two letters are the same, but these two letters change. Paphos is on the island of Cyprus. Patmos is on another island. So they're going to go from Antioch 
to Salamis, to Pahos, and then they're going to go here to Pamphylia, to Perga, which is uh, in the region of Pisidia, getting up there, and then they're going to go to that Antioch. They're going to go to that Antioch, and that Antioch is the Pisidian Antioch, and then they're going to go to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, and then turn right back around and go back to Antioch. So you can see it can be confusing if you just don't take a moment to look at it and give yourself permission once again to be confused and get it wrong. It's okay. It is confusing if you don't know the street names, if you don't know the blocks, if you don't know what's going on. Just like when I came to Chicago, I had to begin to understand how the streets were counting down, you know, and it began to make sense to me on the grid. But then there were streets like Milwaukee that would throw everything off because it kind of goes kitty corner against the grid, and it would be hard for me to place myself on the grid as I'm going kitty corner. Lincoln Avenue is another one of those. And then, and then we have uh, streets that will continue on all the way into the suburbs, but they will get kind of dead-ended and rerouted. So you can take Irving Park for a long time, but you'll get rerouted onto other streets, okay? And so this is their neighborhood. This is their way of looking at the world. They would have understood why there were regions. And the reason there were regions is because the history of this goes far, far back. Like if you study the history of Galatia, Galatia is, is right here next to Pergia, this area right here has taken on land, lost land, you know, and these were where kings and, and whatever rulers used to be, and then the Greeks took over, and then the Romans took over, and so they're all kind of dividing up the land, and sometimes they keep some of the, name re some of the same names of the regions, and so even that can get a bit confusing, but what we really summarize his first missionary journey as is Galatia. The whole region here, they're kind of summarizing it as Galatia. So when the letter of Galatians was given out, which we believe is the first letter of the New Testament, even predating the gospel letters, and it's written by Paul, we believe it was for all of those churches up in that area. Okay, so if you have any questions, you can wait to the end. But that's just something I want to share with you and give you grace to really just enjoy the journey. Okay, the two of them, talking about Paul and Barnabas in verse 4, sent out on their way by the Holy Spirit. Notice how the Holy Spirit's always a part of the party because there ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party because the Holy Ghost party don't stop. They're praying with the Holy Ghost. They're sending out with the Holy Ghost. The people sending out are going with the Holy Ghost. Sounds like the Holy Ghost Pentecostal handbook to me. They went down to Seleucia, which is just right here underneath um, Antioch, just right there, just went from boom to boom. And then they go down, it says here, uh, sailed from there to Cyprus, verse 5, when they arrived at Salamis. See, and that's the part just, I want to give this to you one last time because I know it set me free. If you're thinking like me, they arrive in Cyprus, it says, and then now uh, they sail to Cyprus, but then now they arrive at Salamis. You may get confused. You're like, well, I thought you just went to Cyprus. Because what is Cyprus? If you don't know what it is, you may think Cyprus is a city. You know, that it just contradicts itself. No, Cyprus is the island. Salamis is the city. See, that would make just as much sense to us. We sailed to England and arrived in London. See, that would make sense to everybody. I wouldn't be confusing to anybody here, would it? We, and, I, and, and England is an island, by the way, you know? So we, we, we sailed to England, arrived in London. Not a big deal. We sailed to Cyprus, landed in Salamis. It's important that we love the Word of God. That's why I want to help it to be clear to you. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogues. Now, why are they doing that? Romans 1.16 says it's for the Jew first. 
than for the Gentile. That is going to be their mode of operation as they're reaching the places where the Jews are at. So the first thing they need to do is give the word to the Jewish people. Now it says here, John was with them as their helper. This John, once again, it gets a little bit confusing, is also named by, in his full name, John Mark, who for whatever reason, when he writes the gospel, is now known as Mark and not John Mark. So we should be turning to the book of John Mark. But they gave it Mark. So you may be wondering, who in the world is this John Mark? This John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. He is a cousin of Barnabas and a helper to Peter as time goes on. And one of the reasons he has to start rolling with Peter is we're going to find out that he leaves, get kicks off, gets kicked out of the mission team of Paul's group, causes the division between Paul and Barnabas and starts rolling with them boys, okay? But Paul reinstates him later on. So John was with them as a helper. In verse 6, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. And that's where they go right here. They traveled through the whole island, okay? This is a two-year time period when they're going to do all this. So that would be really cool, traveling through the island of Cyprus. If you ever get time, look it up online. It's a beautiful island. Uh, my family wants me to go there because my, fam uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law are from Greek, uh, Greece. They're actually from Thessalonica. Thessaloniki is how they say it. So uh, I would love to go see some of these islands out there. So they're going to the very end of the island. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, what does the word Bar mean? Son of, exactly. Son of Jesus. What is the Jewish name Jesus? What is it? Uh, how would we say it? Yeshua, which means what? What's another word for it? How do we call it in the Old Testament? There's a whole book named after Jesus. Joshua, exactly. Exactly. And what is your name? Joseph Joshua. Isn't that special? Yeah, my name is Joseph James. So I got books of the Bible. So it's, it's all there. So Joshua, which for whatever reason, this is where it gets kind of confusing. Confusing. Why do we skip right into the Greek and go to Iesus, which is Jesus, and not call him Joshua, which we do from the Aramaic? When we translate Yahshua in Aramaic to English, we go Yahshua, Joshua. But when they wrote out Yeshua in Greek, because that's what the New Testament's written in, even, you know, the Gospels and everything, they go from Yeshua to Jesus. Jesus, no J in the Greek language, starts with an I, okay? Jesus. Jesus gets translated better into Jesus than to Joshua. So our Lord and Savior's name is really Joshua in English. That sounds weird to you, doesn't it? To call on the name of Joshua. Joshua, I pray right now that you will save me and do all these wonderful things in my life. It sounds weird. almost sounds blasphemy, right? But there's actually nothing wrong with doing it that way. But someone may make the one argument, and this may be their argument, that because the Gospels and all of this were written in Greek, that that would be the name. And so, therefore, we now need to use the derivative of Iesus, which would be Jesus. It's easier to write it that way in transliteration. Or you can skip all of the transliterations and go back to what some people like to do, the Hebrew roots, guys. Be careful with them. Not just talking about the cults that we debate, but there's some Christians who really want to go hardcore into Hebrew roots. Uh, they think the name is sacred, so forth. And they'll believe in the Trinity and salvation by grace, but they'll start making these kind of inroads there, uh, very similar to like a seven-day Adventist. Now, seven-day Adventists have been cults, but now they've kind of veered more. As they've gotten more away from their founder, Mary Baker Eddy, more into mainline Christianity, but they'll still hold on to some of the law and different things. But uh, some people just skip the whole thing and just go to Yeshua. 
But uh, you're not being accurate when you do that because there is no Aramaic in the New Testament. So they obviously were okay with him being Jesus, Jesus. So that's just something to play on your mind and think multicultural again, multicultural. And so if you're comfortable with the name Jesus, obviously keep it. That was what the Greek New Testament was written in. But his name Jesus means Yahshua, G- uh, Yahweh saves Joshua. That's what his name is. So bar Jesus, bar Joshua. Okay, that would be what it would have meant. His name would have meant Aramaic, the son of Joshua. Verse 7, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Now watch the historical anomaly right here. That is exactly Paul's name in Latin. That is Paul's name. But why don't the translators now translate it Sergio Paul? Like, make it more English sounding. They actually keep it in the Latin phraseology when they translate Sergius Paulus. And now that makes you think that Paulus is a different name than Paul. Paul is the word Paulus in Latin. That's the same exact words. Everybody get that? But it's just history. It's just history. It's how they did things. So here's a guy that's named Bar Jesus. He's a sorcerer and false prophet. He's the attendant of a guy that's a Roman proconsul. He's a leader, like an alderman of this region. The proconsul is an, was an intelligent man. He sent for Barnabas, which remember, Barnabas, is that his real name? What is Barnabas' real name? Joseph. And so what does Barnabas mean? Son of what? Son of encouragement. Exactly. So now he's going by his nickname the church gave him. We're not even calling him Joseph anymore. We're calling him son of encouragement, right? The proconsul and intelligent and, and the proconsul and intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. This is awesome. This leader of the Roman region here wants to hear about it. But Elimaeus, the sorcerer. Now, what in the world happened here? Elimaeus. I thought his name was Bar Jesus. But he has a nickname, Elimaeus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means. Sorcerer, Elimaeus, the play on those words are the same word. So here you see quickly, just in a few verses, we're only at what, verse 8, and you you got multiple names, multiple cities, uh, multiple even translations. One's Paulus, one's being translated Paul. Why? Because this was the way history was done, and it made sense to those people. Okay, so Elimaeus, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul. Now, what is neat about this, which I never had caught before, Jared, and you may just enjoy this, as some historical nerds may as well. This is okay to be a nerd here, is that Paulus is the name Paul in Latin. And it's after this is mentioned that they go to the proconsul guy named Sergius Paulus that now we're told that Saul's name was also Paul. And now from this point on, he's only known as Paul. Is that a dink? I don't know. Is there something spiritual there? I definitely don't think so. So I'm not going to be superstitious as I said before. But it is a neat little thing here. When he says, there's a guy named Sergio Paul, there's another proconsul guy, this name's Paul. While we go to meet with him, Saul, who's also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, does all these things. And now from this point on, we're only going to call Saul Paul. Now remember, did he have a name change like Peter? No, he didn't. 
His name was always Saul or Paul. And I actually went back and looked at Craig Keener's cultural uh, commentary here. A lot of times they purposely chose Latin names for the, the Jewish people to match or sound like their Hebraic names. So it's no dink that Saul would sound like Paul. I was curious of that. Why would it sound so similar? But that actually says that's what they would do, is to kind of find nicknames that sounded very similar. And so that was his name that he would use when dealing with the Romans and the Gentiles. And so as we can see from this point on, that's going to be his primary audience, though he's always going to go to the Jews first, but his primary audience will be the Gentiles. He's an apostle to the Gentiles, whereas Peter's going to be predominantly to the Jews. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, verse 9, filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? There he is, filled with the Holy Ghost. Looked straight at Elimaeus and said, you are an awesome person, and I want to tell you about your best life now and all the potential that I see in you. You've just got a few things wrong, and if you just come to my conference, it's only $150. If you do pre-registration, we'll give it to you for $125. And so if you come to my conference, I will help you and make you a better person. Is that what Paul said to Elimaeus? No, thank you, Jesus. That isn't what he said. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the ways of the Lord? Rebukes him. That is probably about the strongest rebuke a person could ever receive or did receive in the Bible. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So it was this sign and wonder that opened up his heart to hear the teaching of the Lord. Now, once again, let's go through some things here historically. If they were making up stuff along the way of this journey, why don't they make up stuff about when they're going to die or when they're going to get persecuted in other places? Because once again, they're just telling you the truth. There were times that people gave them a hard time and resistance and actually won out and they got killed and James died, the brother of John. It happened. But there were other times where supernaturally God would say, nope, it's not time for these men to die, these women to die, whoever's being spared at that point. Nope, it's not time. I'm doing this work right here. Now, once again, is that a normative thing? No, it wasn't normative, but it did happen. Can it happen today? Absolutely. Just be careful when you do it because you're going to have to stand by those words. And if you're outside of the word of God, you just made a threat and you can go to jail and you'll have a lot of trouble on your hands. But this was an actual thing that God used Paul to do. Paul stopped this man from being a distraction. He obviously knew about the man because he knew things about his life and his consistency of seeking evil and wickedness. They probably had been going on for days. Maybe they had done some debates and discussions. Remember, we're hearing about two years of time within about 60 verses. Okay, chapter 13 is about 40 verses, and then there's some verses in 14. So this is condensed, right? And it shows us that God wanted to protect the gospel and get it out. And so, once again, does this change 
uh, over time. No, God is still able to do these things today. This puts a, um, a clog in some people's the- theological wheel that thinks that the God of the Old Testament was the meanie, but then Jesus came, subsided all the anger, the issues that the Father had, and now Jesus is just love, you know, just love everybody. Well, that went away with an ice and Sapphira dropping dead after they lied about their offering, right? So we found out that not to be true. That was a lie. And then when Jesus, uh, you know, knocks uh, Paul down and blinds him, so we got some evidence there. And then now, once again, this is still the same God of the Old Testament doing judgment. He will use judgment to make the gospel of grace continue forward. Doesn't do it all the time, but he can. Oh, and also with Herod, uh, you know, basically receiving the praise of a God and then his uh, stomach bursting forth with all the worms and being eaten from the inside out. So this actually opens the eyes and the heart of the proconsul, and he believed, and he was amazed, okay? Now, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Pergia and Pamphylia. Now, there you get the understanding. Perga is a city in Pamphylia, the region, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. That was not a sanctioned vacay. John Mark did not have permission to go back to Jerusalem. I believe somewhere along this journey, he either gets homesick, he stops wanting to be submissive, or he gets scared because they're starting to hear the threats of the Jewish people. Maybe there's this uh, idea that they're going to start persecuting them, you know, because that's actually what happens later on. Whether he was homesick, whether he was just unsubmissive with a bad attitude, or he got scared, he leaves when he wasn't supposed to leave. He leaves the missionary journey. You may be tempted to leave the Bible college before it's your time to leave, but that is not God's will for your life. Be faithful to the end. Finish what you start. Can I hear an amen? Amen. So he takes off at this journey. Verse 14, from Perga, they went on to Pisidian, Antioch. See, the area of Poseidon, Pamphylia are right by each other. There's another place called Antioch there. So now they're there. Don't be confused. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now notice, they didn't have to go in there and disrespect them. I don't believe we should ever disrespect people just to get our message across. I do believe we have the gospel of truth, but I'm not going to run up into a Jehovah Witness church and just start speaking, okay? I'm not going to do that in a Catholic mass. They sat down. They waited to be called upon. Let that be our, deb- uh, our demeanor as we go to do apologetics. They come in there in peace. They wait for a turn to speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand, and this would mean he's going to start public speaking. The motion with the hand, that has been used as long as public speaking has been around. Paul standing up, motioned with his hand, and that's why when we want you guys to speak, stand in a posture that's recognizable to our culture as public speaking. Even if you're in a small group and it's time to public speak, uh, public speak. Now, in a small group doing a Bible study, that's different. But if you're even in a small service setting or the group now needs you to publicly speak, stand up to be counted and to be known as the speaker. Maybe raise your hand a little bit. Billy Sunday brought into the American culture a lot of those moves you would see. He would preach like this, and he was known to do things like that. You can actually see preachers imitating Billy Sunday and pictures of Billy Sunday doing that with his Bible, throwing it out there like that. Billy Graham 
Graham was greatly influenced by Billy Sunday and used a lot of his hand motions as well. So Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now notice this right here, as we talked about before, the God-fearers, there were always Gentiles around the Jewish people, okay? So they were there at that synagogue. You, you Jews and you Gentiles who worship God, the God of our people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness and then overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving them their, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. So here's how he's going to preach to the Jew. The Bible says he would come as a Jew to the Jew, a Gentile to the Gentile. When he's going to come to the Jew, he's going to start telling their history. He's going to start with Moses. He's going to explain to them how they are Jewish people to begin with, why they are special, why the land of Israel is special, and then he's going to show the Jewish Messiah, okay? All this took place at about 450 years. And remember, the 400 years to the 450-year difference with Philip, and just make sure Philip, because I believe he said 400 years, uh, excuse me, Stephen, when he preached, he's going to say 400. That 50-year difference has to deal with the time of Joseph and those, and, and those things. So there's a difference of overlap there. Some count the time of Joseph and all of that, and then the time after Joseph uh, and his uh, genealogy died, or at least they didn't know the people of Joseph anymore, the Bible says, then that started the 400 years of, of intense slavery, okay? But just double-check me on that because some people may point out to you a contradiction of, of uh, Stephen saying 400 and Paul saying 450. Thank you, okay? So now you guys know the difference. The 50 years was a time of basically favor with Joseph and Jacob and so forth, but after the time of favor ended, then it turned into intense slavery. But the whole period of them being in the Egyptian area was about 450 years, and that's why it's termed that way, about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And I don't say this to boast, but I want you guys to do the connection right now. Paul is preaching without notes, and it's going really in-depth, right? He's doing it all from memory. Do you see any notes here for your pastor? And I'm doing it from memory. That is the tradition of Christians. You must learn how to do what I'm doing now. You have to follow in the tradition of your elders. This is the ancient way of us as preachers. We ingest the information. We, we study ourselves full, preach ourselves empty. You may not always be right, and you may sometimes find yourself like the author of Hebrews saying, somewhere in the Psalms it says this, and somewhere in the prophets it says this. As a matter of fact, there's actually no direct reference anywhere in the New Testament of a chapter and verse because that never existed. So the best they would do is reference you to the author, but sometimes they spoke in great generalities, and that's where they'll try to find other contradictions as they'll say, oh, so-and-so said this, but he said that. Sometimes they would, they would encompass Jeremiah into multiple books as well, and, and they would speak to them about in generality, the prophets or, and so forth. And so it's, it's good for you to learn the chapters and verses and all of the names of the book, but here is our, our ancient way. Our ancient way is to understand it is all God has said. That's just the bottom line. God said. Whether it's, whether it's noted before that, Genesis 2, verse 3, Jeremiah 5, verse 8, as long as you're saying God said and you've got that down right, you're doing the right thing. Amen? Verse 20, all this took place about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. David testified concerning him. Um, he said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. That was 1 Samuel 13, 14. 
from this man's descendants. God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not wor worthy to untie. That's Mark 1.7. This, once again, gives us proof of Paul's understanding of the gospel narratives before they were even written. Sometimes there is an accusation brought against the church from Muslims and atheists. They borrow, excuse me, each other's arguments that uh, since Paul's writings precede the gospels, it was Paul's, and since Paul never quotes anything from the gospel that much, um, word for word, that it would seem like Paul changed the early faith of the church and that what his disciples wanted in the mouth of Jesus, they wrote into the mouth of Jesus. So Luke would be a prime example. They would say, uh, you know, Paul told Luke what to put into the mouth of Jesus in the gospels of Luke. But that is so untrue. What is happening is Paul is preaching in a time period before the gospels are even written down. He knows about it by word of mouth. And when uh, you go through all of his epistles, uh, you can find hundreds of references, not direct quotes, but hundreds, a few direct like here. Well, it's not directly from Jesus, but from the Gospels, but hundreds of references to the teachings of Jesus. Just absolutely astonishing how much he knew the teachings of Jesus. But uh, here is an example of how he knew how the Gospels started. They started with John being the Elijah-type witness, being the forerunner of the Messiah, saying, I'm not the one. And he even paraphrases him here, who do you suppose I am? We don't have that directly in any of the Gospels, but he's paraphrasing him in his language to the people, saying, hey, who do you think I am? I'm not the one that you, you know, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one you may be thinking I am. I'm the one here to come before him, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. Verse 26 Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Where would we find a prophetical reference that they're going to reject him, despise him, consider him a man stricken by God, cursed? Isaiah, predominantly Isaiah 53. Okay, and Isaiah was one of their favorite prophets, one of the biggest books of the Bible, right? Jeremiah and Isaiah. Though they found no pro proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses. They are now his witnesses to our people. That is the gospel. He just preached it. Boom. Did you get it? He builds it up with the history of Israel, but now he just tells the gospel. Jesus came died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and the witnesses are alive today. Verse 32, we tell you the good news. What is another word for good news? Gospel, evangelion, the good news where we get the word evangelize and evangelism from. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. Here we go. This is the closest reference you'll ever get to a chapter and a verse. The second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father, Psalm 2, verse 7. 
God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the whole I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David, Isaiah 53:3. So it is also stated some elsewhere, it's not somewhere but elsewhere. See, this is where he has to go general. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. That's Psalm 16:10. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors. His body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Do you see how he takes the prophecies of David and applies them to Jesus? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know, this is a key verse today. I want you to know that through Jesus, through the law of Moses, no, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from how many sins? Every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Now, Joe B., we understand that God gave the law to Moses. But is it improper to distinguish the law of Moses from the free gift of God's salvation? Absolutely not. That was Paul's method. He would say the law of Moses can't save you. This law cannot save you. But faith in Jesus can. Is it faith in Jesus plus good works that save us? Or is it faith in Jesus plus nothing that saves us? Faith in Jesus alone. Amen. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. So he now says to them, look, the prophets said this in the Old Testament when they were, uh, when the people of Israel were missing the promises of God. Don't let this happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. That's found in Habakkuk 1.5. Don't let that be you. Habakkuk was talking about the, the judgment and restoration of the people, the judgment and restoration. He's saying, don't miss it. It's God's judgment and restoration through Jesus. He has judged the devil. He has sentenced him to perish in eternal hellfire and all those who follow in his wicked way. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to convict of, sin, righteousness, and what? Judgment. So there's both there, the mercy and the judgment of God. Don't miss this. There's going to be terrifying judgment upon the world. But Jesus is a wonderful Savior, more amazing than anything you can, you can imagine. And so just as amazing as the grace of God is, it's just as terrifying as the judgment of God. Amen? Can I hear an amen? Amen. Thank you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. So they're going to start winning them to the Lord. Verse 43. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. In the law of Moses or in the grace of God? In the grace of God. That is a purposeful distinction. Verse 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost what whole city? What city are they in? They're in Antioch. They're in Antioch, Pisidian, to gather to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? Jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. So they want to start a fight. They don't want to have a dialogue. They're not going to be like the Bereans we're going to learn later on that want to study. They want to now start throwing shade. They want to now start persecuting them and shutting them down using their political affiliation with Rome to get these guys arrested, persecuted, killed, etc. Just like Paul was doing beforehand when he was taking the property of the Christians away and putting them in jail and trying to have them killed. 
before he was converted. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Listen to this. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Why? Because that's what Jesus said. Go to them first. Go to the Jewish people first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Amen. Isaiah 49.6. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now notice this, tied into yesterday's message in Ephesians, to walk worthy. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, walk worthy of the calling you have received. You don't walk worthy to get the calling. You receive it by grace through faith. Now that you have sonship, daughtership with the Lord, walk worthy of a son, walk worthy of a daughter. Live up to, as he says in Philippians, live up to what you have already obtained. Live up to it. Paul said, I have not received physical perfection, but I have received inner perfection. I'm still pursuing and waiting for the physical resurrection, but that which I have, I will do. I will live up to what I have already obtained. Live up to it. Walk worthy of it. Now watch this. They did not count themselves worthy of eternal life. Well, hold on, Pastor. I thought we weren't supposed to try to be worthy to be saved. I thought we'd just receive it. Yeah. But you have to believe that Jesus died and counted you worth it. Now get this, because I'm going to bring it up next week. You all going to get the first nuggie on this. They denied Jesus and wanted to earn it themselves by keeping the law of Moses and therefore became unworthy of the free gift of salvation. They actually counted themselves out. How do people do this today? Watch, watch. Be born again. Inherit the kingdom of God so you may be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I can't be perfect. Nobody is perfect. Now you just counted yourself unworthy of the gift that God already said you were worthy for. God said you were worthy to be made perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect because His love determines your worth. Not by your good works, not by your human potential, but God found it worth you, worth him sending his son for, ultimately for the glory of God. But this shows the worth of humanity to God. God values us. God wants us. And that's why the psalmist said, who is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now get this. By them trying to achieve salvation by works, they actually damned themselves. And, can, and, and took on an unworthiness. Because isn't that what the law does? Doesn't the law only convict? Doesn't the law only show you the sin? Doesn't the law only bring the death? Like Paul said, I wouldn't have known what jealousy was until the law came, and then I was convicted of being jealous and so forth, coveting. And so how can we miss the grace of God? How can we miss the grace of God by trying to take salvation in our own hands, by trying to do it ourselves, that is where you become unworthy of salvation because God can't save what he promised to judge and curse. 
Are you listening? God can't bless what he said he would curse. He said, cursed are those who do not abide by the law. Curse is one who does not keep it all. And no one has kept it all. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we need a Savior to save us from the law who was himself the perfect fulfillment of it. And then now we need to follow his law, the law of Christ, his commands, his words. That's what Jesus taught us, amen? And so Jesus doesn't teach us to keep the feast days and all of the Sabbaths and to, to do all the priestly things and sacrifice. No, Jesus says love God and love people and, and, and you know, be gentle and merciful and kind and a peacemaker and all of those things. And then he said he would send the Holy Spirit to tell the rest of the, the story to us. And the apostles write down these things, you know, like in Galatians, the list of the sins, you know, don't be a sexual immoral person, etc. But if you stop the grace of God, you're literally trying to say, I can do this, God. No, I don't need your help. And then you're arguing with God, and then therefore you're unworthy of eternal life. So the very thing that the person thinks they're doing to be humble is actually reeking of pride. So let's go over it again. God will save you by faith, not of your own effort. But I can't do it. I'm so weak. No, no, it's not on your effort. Are you listening to me? You will get born again. Just like you didn't make anything happen the first time you were born, you weren't grabbing a hold of your mom saying, I'm coming out, mom, I'm coming. You didn't do that the first time, did you? Come on, I don't mean to be gross, but did you help yourself get born the first time? Did they throw in a rope and have you pull you out? No, listen, that didn't happen the first time, but what did you do? You just sat there and got birthed by somebody else. Now, what do you do now? You just let somebody else birth you. But no, no, I got to do it myself. No, the Bible says he'll do it for you, not by works. You can't boast about this. Well, nobody's perfect. You know, I just keep messing up. Yeah, but he'll forgive you and make you holy as he is holy. He'll make you perfect as he's perfect. Oh, but nobody's perfect. See, now you're arguing. Well, if you don't want the free gift, you're going to stay where you are as a sinner, unworthy of salvation. Because by works, you're going to earn the paycheck of hell. By grace, you receive the gift of salvation. Do you see the difference? That is a tremendous difference that we see in that passage that connected us to the passage we heard yesterday. And then we see a favorite verse of the Calvinists, those who really believe that God makes the choices of choosing who gets saved and who gets uh, damned or who remains lost. It says, uh, they honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believe. What does that word, uh, uh, that, that phrase there, appointed for eternal life believe? Does that mean God said, okay, uh, I got an appointment for Lawrence to believe, but uh, I don't have an appointment for TJ to believe. So TJ's still going to go to hell, but I'm going to make sure Lawrence goes to heaven. No, it says right at the beginning, they had this choice to honor the word and then God says, that's right on time. I, I knew they would do that, and I appointed this place for people to choose me to do that. So could others have been chosen that day to be saved? Absolutely. But many are called, few are chosen. Based on God's chosen, uh, choosing? No, based on your choosing. Does everybody get that? He knew that day who would do it, and he had an appointment for him. He knew who would do it, but he could have known that everyone would have done it if they would have chosen to believe. Many are called, few are chosen. Who makes the difference between the called and the chosen? Jesus used that as an example of what we choose. 
We are chosen when we choose him. They were appointed when they honored the word of the Lord. And since God knows the end from the beginning, he knew those who would do that. Do you guys see how that works? It's what we call foreknowledge. It's what we call predestination. It's not God predetermining their belief. It's God knowing who is going to believe and predestining that situation to play out so that those who choose him may be saved and may have a calling and have uh, the workmanship of God given to them that they may do the works prepared for them. Amen. You're not here by accident. God knew that you would be here, and he appointed it to happen this way, but he knew you would choose him. So he has not appointed people based on his choice to go to heaven and hell. He is appointing based on their choice to accept it. And so you could just say it like this. I have an appointment with God because I've chosen to be with him. I chose. Not that I take credit for my salvation, but the appointment was set because I honored the word. I humbled myself. I did what I uh, heard God telling me to do. I obeyed. Everybody say, I obeyed. obeyed. Amen. Now, is faith considered a work in the New Testament? No, faith is not a work. So you choosing to have faith, you're not rewarded for that. You're not rewarded for that. You are saved by making the choice of salvation because God did all the work, okay? Just like as if somebody was being rescued from a boat, uh, a boat that was sinking from the Coast Guard. They don't say, man, did you see me? I grabbed a hold of that life jacket, and, you know, and, and, and then I just hung like this as, as it pulled me up. No, they don't get to do that. You're like, thank you for bringing the helicopter. Thank you for lowering the line. Thank you for the, you know, I, I, just, I just let them attach it to me. Because you didn't keep punching the guy and say, get away from me. And see, that's what sinners have to do to go to hell. They literally have to resist, push back the grace of God. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, the region of what? What we're now knowing as Galatia, the whole region of Galatia. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They got the troublemakers. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region of Galatia and Pamphylia and all these areas. So then what did they do? They do what Jesus told them to do. They shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. Mark 10, uh, Matthew 10, 14 talks about that. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. From the beginning to the end of this chapter, the Holy Spirit was filling and moving and leading and empowering. We're going to see next that people are going to get healed. They're going to try to make them gods. They're going to refuse to do that. Then the Jews are going to stir up more persecution. And that's really the way it's going to be. It's going to be revival or riot, revival or riot, sometimes both in the same region, revival and riot, or riot and revival. But God used them and protected them so the gospel message could keep spreading. When people tried to come against them as a bar Jesus, God prevented that man from stopping the word, from going to that proconsul, Sergio Paulus. And then when people dropped out and left, them. They kept preaching and going, and now they're going to have to deal with this, this issue with John Mark, and it's going to put them in a difficult position. But as I say, I trust Paul in this because the gospel writer, Luke, keeps following Paul. The author of, of Acts here, rather, follows Paul, and so I believe that was God's hand upon his life. In summary, I would say that we need to look to this chapter in the Pentecostal handbook and say to the Lord, may we be faithful to preach the gospel to all people with boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit as Paul and Barnabas did.
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great time of learning what these disciples did for Jesus in these regions and the Roman Empire at this time and how they were reaching to the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and God, there was judgment and there was miracles. And, oh, Lord, there was uh, just all kinds of drama happening even in their own group, Lord. But yet the word of, of God was going forth. They were being filled with the Holy Spirit. They weren't letting their circumstances dictate their identity. They were uh, remaining strong in you, Lord. And may we be encouraged to do that in our culture to keep preaching your word and to see souls saved and not get discouraged of people coming in out of our ministry. And uh, Lord, to be faithful, to believe for miracles to happen and for governors and leaders to be saved. Lord, let us see what they saw. May the book of Acts happen in our lifetime. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's give it up for Jesus. Come on.